0: Remain standing for the Gospel lesson, which is taken from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Hear the Gospel of the Lord. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our text this morning is the gospel lesson from Luke chapter 19, which was just read. It's the well-known account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as He begins that dramatic last week of His life. Uh, This Sunday, Palm Sunday, is also known as Passion Sunday. The word passion meaning suffering. Because it's right here that Jesus' humiliation, His passion, His suffering which He embraced from the very beginning, begins to reach its culmination. This is the end of the pilgrimage that Jesus was making for the Passover. It started in the far northeast of Israel, in the the region of Galilee. That's where Jesus was, if you follow Luke's Gospel. And He and His band have been walking through the Judean desert. Climbing the whole time. And the very last leg of this journey starts at Jericho. Jericho is a thousand feet below sea level. It's in the Jordan River Valley. It's east of Jerusalem. It's the lowest city in the world, Jericho. At least it was at the time. And verse 28 tells us that Jesus is going on ahead leading them as they go up to Jerusalem. And near the end of this long pilgrimage, they still have to climb the Mount of Olives. And that's a mountain which has messianic electricity about it. Associations with the coming of the Messiah, which go all the way back to Zechariah chapter 14, which says that on that mountain... Israel's Messiah will appear. And they draw near, to the text says, to Bethpage and Bethany, two little towns. At this point, they're one mile from Jerusalem. And Bethany is nestled on the east side of the mountain, and Jericho is on the, Jer- the Jericho side, and Bethpage on the other. Now once you get to Bethany on this mountain, and you pass it, You're ready to crest the summit of the mountain. And then Jerusalem, the beloved but apostate city, the place of the inevitable collision, comes into view immediately. At the bottom of the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley. And then across that little valley, Jerusalem sits on a little hill of its own it would be exhilarating to get to this point of the journey. It was springtime, and the city is swarming with pilgrims from all over the land, and indeed from all over the world. Hundreds of thousands ready to celebrate the Passover. And for Jesus, this is a key dramatic moment in His mission. Up until now, he would often tell people not to disclose his messiahship. He would heal people and say, Don't tell anybody. Now, he takes a deliberate step publicly to tell the whole city and all of its worshipers, I am the messiah. I am the Messiah, the promised Messiah, I am the King of the Jews. And so at verse 30, beginning there, we'll look at this text under five headings. They're simple. Five headings. Want to look at the cult or the donkey, the enthronement. We want to say a few words about the crowd the Pharisees, and the city. So, the cult, the enthronement, the crowd, the Pharisees, and the city. So, first then the cult. In verses 30 and 31 of the text, he tells two of his disciples to go to a nearby village to find a cult. We know from the other Gospels it's a donkey one on which no one has ever ridden they're to untie it they're to bring it to Jesus there's a cultural background here it's something known in the roman empire as the agaria and the agaria was a kind of a postal dispatch system for royal messages to be sent across the empire, or maybe even for the conveying of dignitaries from one place to another, and generally this was done on horses. And the supply of horses by the public was mandatory. It was not optional. And this privilege under the Agoria was extended to the rabbis, to the Jewish rabbis. And so Jesus' commandeering of this animal is not unusual at all. A rabbi could do it. In the Roman world. What is unusual is that there's so much space devoted to it. If you look at this text, the tying or the untying of this cult is mentioned five times. We are meant here to pick up an allusion that goes all the way back to Genesis 49, where the royal Messiah from the tribe of Judah takes a cult ties it to a vine. And so both the mountain, the Mount of Olives and the cult, reverberate. They're electric, as I said, with this kingly messianic significance. The cult or the donkey, the fact that it has never been sat upon or ridden indicates it's set apart for this holy, sacred service. Jesus comes from a virginal womb, he's enthroned here on a pristine donkey and he'll be laid in a virgin tomb in which no one was ever laid. Same language. And in verse 31, he asks, he says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Then you shall say, the Lord needs it, which functions here like a sort of password. As a rabbi, he has a right to it, but Jesus respects the owners, so he says, if they ask you, this is what you tell them. And you can see in verses 32 and 33 and 34, they find everything just as Jesus had said. The script is followed perfectly. And yet, while this is a kingly, messianic scene, it's profoundly atypical. I mean, victorious kings, right? The dignitaries of this age, they ride in, in this world, on war horses. Right? Not on rented donkeys. So this is humiliated kingship. Victory through weakness. Conquest by being conquered. This is an inverted Triumphant entry, which is why the sermon is titled the A Triumphal Entry. Second point, the enthronement itself, in the middle of verse 35, the disciples, apparently not conscious of their designer labels, they throw all their cloaks onto the cult. And, and, and these, these clothes are serving as something of a saddle. But there's much more happening here. In the Old Testament, back in 2 Kings, when Jehu is anointed king, the people take their garments and they place them under His feet. And so what's going on here is the people are publicly acknowledging Jesus as the Messianic King. This becomes even clearer if you look at the text. We're told that the people put Jesus on the donkey. He doesn't mount it Himself. They pick Him up. And they enthrone him in this rented throne. And then we're told that as he went, they spread their clothes on the road as well, palm branches as well in, in, in the other gospels. And so what is this? Right? This is a cheap, makeshift red carpet. Right? For it's an atriumphal. Atypical pathway for Israel's king. Now remember, Jesus had walked, walked the whole way. There's absolutely no physical reason for him to ride the last mile or so. In fact, he climbed the steep ascent on foot, and now it's the visible descent down into the Kidron Valley at the base of the city. That's where he decides he's going to ride, right there. And Matthew and John, in their Gospels, they tell us expressly why Jesus did this. This is something of a play. A dramatic enactment by the Lord. He is staging this scene intentionally. He did it to fulfill, we are told in the other Gospels, the prophecy of Zechariah 9, which we saw in our call to worship this morning. Behold, your King is coming to you. Lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. So he takes the mantle to himself, publicly for the first time. I'm the messianic king. Of course, not the type of king that many, including his disciples, were expecting. Right? They, wanted a, they wanted a militaristic messiah, one who would slaughter their enemies and remove the the yoke of the Romans from Israel. But instead, they're getting this. This lowly, suffering servant who comes proclaiming peace. This is messianic victory. But it's in disguise. And so the third point is the crowd. They come to the descent, and the text tells us that the whole crowd... Of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Remember, among other things, these people had seen Lazarus, a resident of Bethany. That's where that's where the dress rehearsal is for the play. They had seen him raised from the dead. I mean, and who doesn't like miracles? It's very easy to praise God in the midst of miracles. And they're praising God for the miracles that they had seen Jesus do. The text tells us that these are disciples, but again, we know from the other Gospels, and even from later in this Gospel, that this is a mixed multitude. But there are some hangers-on in this crowd who are not sure about this Jesus character. And they're simply along for the ride, or they're just impressed by the signs. Bright lights attract big bugs, right? Jesus is a bright light. There's all sorts of people in this crowd. And surely many, including His disciples, are confused about the nature of His kingship. We know this because when the heat gets turned up in the next few days, all of them, except for John and a few women, flee in cowardice. All right, some, not, not all, but some in this crowd are going to end up shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Imagine that. Some in this crowd, praising God for the miracles they had seen, are going to be screaming, Crucify Him! in front of Pilate in less than one week. And so what does the crowd do? They quote, From Psalm 118, which is also a messianic psalm. It's a psalm used in Israel for the royal enthronement of kings. Psalm 118, they cite it. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, an explicit acknowledgement. This is the enthroned Messiah. What's interesting is the crowd doesn't cite the next verse of Psalm 118. The verse right after, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, in Psalm 118, speaks of binding the sacrifice to the altar with boughs, probably palms. The palms laid out for this king end up with him being bound, enthroned on the altar of sacrifice. So that's the crowd. The fourth point to the Pharisees. Pharisees are along for the ride, too, here. And uh, noisy, noisy religious celebrations always tend to upset the guardians of orthodoxy. They don't like noise for some reason. So we can see in the text there are Pharisees in the mix. And knowing they couldn't silence the disciples on their own authority, they have the temerity to ask Jesus to do it. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, why do they do this? It's not just because, you know, they're sticks in the mud and they don't like noise. They caught the messianic overtones in all this noise. And they're probably worried that it would tip off the Romans who might respond with violence against what the Romans would perceive as a threat to their rule in Judea and in Jerusalem. In any event, the Pharisees are clearly rejecting the claim of the crowd. They reject the notion that this one, this Jesus, could be the Messiah of Israel. But what Jesus does is He rebukes the Pharisees. He approves wholeheartedly of this celebration, something He would not have done even 12 hours before this. You can see His words to the Pharisees in verse 40. I tell you, if if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Silence would be criminal, Jesus says. Should the disciples keep quiet, the one who can raise up children of Abraham from these stones, Jesus says, will have even the inanimate creation laud the Redeemer King. Fifth, we want to look at the city. And here we start to get to the point to the crux the text is driving us to, the first thing Jesus does as he draws near the city is he weeps over it. He laments that they haven't known the things which make for peace. This, this is a strange kind of conquering king. I mean, everyone is rightly celebrating. Jesus approves the celebration, but he also knows that given his mission, now is the time for his tears. This is actually the second time in Luke's Gospel that he's lamented over Jerusalem. The prior lament back in Luke 13 begins with, Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Words words which evoke an almost inconsolable longing. In the heart of Christ. We get a rare glimpse, I think, into the depth of our Savior's love and pity here. How does he feel about the bloody city? The city which he has pronounced a series of woes upon. The generation that he himself has charged with all the righteous blood shed from the foundation of the world. The city which he himself has described as the city which kills the prophets and stone those that are sent to her. How does he feel about that city? Well, he tells us in Luke 13. He says, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He, he applies this feminine motherly image of a hen to himself, protecting her chicks from danger with her very life. Jesus desires, as he goes to Jerusalem, like a hen, to place his very body between them in harm's way. He yearns to gather them, he says. He yearns to say to their enemies, you cannot harm them without tearing my flesh. He wants his life to be given for theirs. And this is not like a transient emotion in our Lord. He says, how often? With with what great frequency I have wanted you, Jerusalem, to be gathered together to me for peace. And at the end of the text, in verse 44, you can see there's this tragic irony in in Jesus' words about the stones crying out. He says that Jerusalem, having squandered her chance at peace, having not recognized her humiliated king, will be left in rubble, which it was in 70 A.D. Not one stone will be left that's not thrown down, he says. Rome will devastate the city. And the smashed stones of the temple will cry out against them as witnesses. You see, to reject the a-triumphal entry is to submit to the brutal triumphal entry of the Roman armies. That's the choice Jerusalem has right at this hour. What does a text like this say to us? I think we have a, a warning in this text about superimposing our own agenda on Jesus' agenda. (laughs) Or superimposing our own conception of Jesus over top of the biblical picture. We're very much like this crowd, I think. We always seem to have Jesus about half right and half wrong. They wanted a king, but not in humility and not in weakness. But they're willing to lay out their clothes and heap up praise outside the city gates, praising God for the miracles. But even the closest of them flees in in the hour of his trial and his execution. You know, when this scene shifts to where Jesus' enemies are in control, they all clam up. And they clam up in that damning silence that the Pharisees are calling for. Miracles, sure, but a mock trial, a scourging, a tortured, disfigured, executed, criminal man? Where's God in that? What possible victory can there be in that? So, we're on this long, dusty road of discipleship, and it gives us plenty of opportunities to sort out our motives in following Jesus. And this morning, the Spirit asks us, what kind of disciples are we? What kind of a king do we want? What set of expectations do we have about what Jesus is going to do and say and deliver for us? I mean, why are we here in this crowd anyway? I had a, a high school football coach who, uh, who once got up into a player's face because he didn't think the player hit somebody hard enough. And he starts yelling at this kid saying, what kind of a sport is football? And the, you know, the kid's bewildered. He, he, he says the only answer that he knows to say, he says, "Well, uh, football is a contact sport, coach, it's a contact sport. No, he repeats the question. What kind of a sport is football? The kid says it's a, it's a contact sport. This goes on for a minute or two. And finally, the coach says, football is a collision sport. Dancing is a contact sport. Well, discipleship is a collision sport. It's a head-on, full-bodied, unavoidable collision with the cross. It means following this Jesus and no other Jesus all the way into Jerusalem. From that little happy band on the top of the Mount of Olives, down across the valley, into that city, into that mob, into that bloodthirsty hatred, and all the way to Golgotha. Discipleship is a collision sport. And Jesus' pattern of conquest is our inevitable pattern. And yet it's remarkable. There is certainly nothing new in what I just said. But we have a remarkable way of forgetting this. The cross simply does not occupy a central, primitive, primal, basic place in our thinking and affections. I remember in February of 2008, we had not been in Tennessee very long, and an F5 tornado swept through Jackson, Tennessee. A devastating tornado. Killed a bunch of people, wiped out swaths of the town, virtually destroyed half of a Christian university there. And I remember noting in the subsequent months, um, you know, the the public statements, the articles in the newspaper, uh, many from Christian leaders about this tornado. Things were said about God's providence, people were thankful they were protected. People pointed out the the benefits that came from it. You know, we're working together, we're going to rebuild, all of this sort of stuff. But I noted, as this went on, that somehow we're able to talk about an event where the whole creation is groaning in its futility, where violence is inflicted upon a town, where innocent people die and their houses are strewn across the county, and somehow we can discuss the whole thing without any reference whatsoever, even Christians, to the cross of Jesus Christ. Everybody everybody becomes a kind of deist here. So you didn't die in the tornado. What about those people that did die? What about the fact that the tornado reveals to us that the whole creation is groaning and subject to futility and death? What is this all about the fact that you were spared and we get to rebuild and isn't that isn't that comfy how about a god who enters into the violence who bears the violence who deals with it from the inside because he wants to remake the world not one person in that whole city or that whole christian university could even make an instinctive connection between a tornado and the cross of Jesus Christ. Unable to do it. This is not a theological defect. This is due to the fact that the cross simply is tangential for us. We need it here and there, but it's not basic. Right? It's not basic. We know that the way to glory and kingship is through the cross, but we have a kind of ADD about it. right? We, we forget it. We avert our gaze and then we substitute other ways. We don't have to think about doing this. This is what we do good ways, honorable ways, moral ways, other ways of achieving our goals and viewing the world anyway but this way. But, beloved, look, in, in the face of the need and the agony, right, the enmity, The untold misery, the fact that the whole planet is a global cemetery plot. We need this crucified God. I can tell you this, I for one want no other God. I don't want some God who sends me help from above. I want some God underneath my misery, inside of my misery. I want some God who tastes the venom of this stuff the way we taste the venom of it. Everything else is trite trifling religious nonsense and every other Jesus but this Jesus is an idol but we don't want to follow in this manner and we don't want to enter this passion now of course Jesus alone bears the cross for our redemption we are not talking about that here or displacing him in any way or adding to what he does in any way but discipleship is a collision sport. Everyone takes up and bears his or her cross, or they cannot be his disciple. Jesus doesn't say, look, if you don't do this, you can be a second-class disciple. You can be a reasonably mediocre disciple. He says, you can't be my disciple. you got to go with me all the way. And so this is a text which causes us to take stock, to reconsider what Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship. If we're going to hail Him on this Palm Sunday, and we must hail Him, then let us hail Him when the miracles cease. Right? Let us hail Him when the miracles cease. And that means in the midst of our own personal and cultural challenges. Clinging to him where he suffers. Knowing his strength is perfected in weakness. Clinging to him where he's mocked by his foes and ignored and reproached. Letting his cause mean more to us than our own comfort. Because if we seek to save our lives, we are going to lose them. And so there is gladness in this day. But we can't, and we tend to do this, we can't falsify the joy of this day by separating it from the dread of Good Friday. It has to be sober joy, clear-eyed joy, realistic joy, joy that has both cross and resurrection in its sights. So, let us be of good cheer. We can be of good cheer in the midst of this global cemetery plot for one reason and one reason only because this king in utter, naked, broken humility and weakness has overcome the world. Be of good cheer. The light of Easter will soon shatter the darkness. Amen.